0: Listener-supported WNYC Studios.
1: It's politics with Amy Walter on the Takeaway. We begin today with news that the President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump say they have tested positive for the coronavirus. With only about a month to go before the election, this news could upend an election that has already been buffeted by major events on an almost weekly basis. Tolu Olenoripa is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Hey, Tolu. Hey, how are you? I'm good, Tolu. Look, I want to be upfront with our audience here for both of our sake. We're recording this Friday morning, so we don't know exactly what will unfold in the next 72 hours. Just wanted to make sure our audience understands that. This is the President of the United States. He has tested positive for COVID. What does this mean for his ability to govern the nation right now?
0: Oh, this is a huge development. Um, we're just about a month out from Election Day, and the president is quarantining, which means he cannot effectively run a campaign the way you would expect a sitting president to run a campaign. He has to cancel uh, a number of events that he had planned um, for the ramp up of his campaign to try to go into the home stretch and the time of debates uh, and talk to as many voters as possible. He can't do that in person anymore. Uh, he's going to have to wait maybe for a week, maybe for two weeks. We're not really sure. It'll depend on how his symptoms develop, whether or not he is sick or incapacitated, and he's going to have to get several negative tests before he can go back out and campaign. So uh, this is really upending um, the the logistics of campaigning. And when it comes to the messaging of campaigning, the president does not want to be talking about coronavirus. But this is the okay. top story uh, in the world right now because he has coronavirus. He would much rather be talking about the economy or contrasting his view and his policy prescriptions for the country's challenges against Joe Biden. But right now, the focus is going to be on coronavirus, on the fact that the president's handling of the virus not only did not keep the 205 plus thousand Americans who died safe, but he couldn't even keep himself safe from contracting this disease. And that is a devastating attack line that he's gonna have to face not only uh, this week, but also for the final four or five weeks before uh, election day
1: yeah, Tolu, totally. that was exactly where I was going to go there, which is whether it was at the debate or throughout the campaign. he has been urging governors, open your states, open your schools. Everything's going to be fine. Do you think that he changes that message at all as we head into these? as you said, these last 30 days?
0: I doubt that the president himself will change his message. Uh, It may depend on how much uh, the virus impacts him personally and whether or not he is um, asymptomatic or whether or not he Mm. suffers from any major symptoms. I think he would like to do as much as possible to not changed his message to focus uh, on keeping things the same, keeping things the way they have been over the past several weeks, where he's saying everything's going to be fine, no one should panic, everyone should just sort of take a step back and try not to uh, take the virus uh, as a major threat.
1: How likely is it that this, what we're going to find out is that it has spread pretty significantly within his his orbit in the White House?
0: Yeah, the White House has, ha, has to do a massive contract, contact tracing um, effort right now, in, in part because so many people have been in touch with the president, so many people have been in touch with the, the number of people who have already tested positive, the first lady, the president's communication advisor, Hope Hicks, and they have not been wearing masks, they've been attending large events indoors and outdoors. Uh, there's a high likelihood that several other people have contracted the virus or at least are at risk of contracting the virus. And, and a massive outbreak within the West Wing is just the kind of major global development that um, almost should be expected in 2020 just because the the, the the year has been so wild. But having this happen just a few weeks before the election uh, could be a massive challenge for maintaining government as well as for um, the political calendar and the political campaign uh, that that the country is, is, is dealing with right now, and it's going to be very difficult for the White House to contain this and to con- it as a political message, just because we've already seen top officials within the White House impacted and testing positive, and they're going to need to be as transparent as possible with the public, because... Uh, they do have a credibility credibility gap, and uh, I think it'll be uh, incumbent upon them to let the public know how many people have tested positive, who's at risk, and how many people uh, among um, the, the number of elected officials who regularly spend time with the president may have been uh, at risk of contracting this disease and how many may have tested positive.
1: Totally. You, you use the term. Very politely, c- credibility challenge, which I, th- I think we could agree that, yes, getting information in a timely way, getting information um, at all from this White House has been challenging. And I- I'm wondering how confident you feel and the American public should feel about um the White House updating the media on what is actually happening with the president, with people around the president, and how that's going to work.
0: Yeah, I'm not confident at all that the White House will be upfront and transparent with the, the public, with the media about what's happening. Now, the White House did not originally announce the the fact that his top aide was infected and had tested positive for the virus. This was something that was broken by the media Uh, And then the White House eventually confirmed it once it was out there in the public. Uh, And this happened after, you know, the presidency and the White House continued to behave as normal after this positive test for Hope Hicks. They held press briefings. The president continued to hold fundraisers. There was no... Sign that anything was amiss within the White House. So I do fear that, that this White House will not uh, allow any bad news to, to get out there. I think if there's good news for them to share, they will they will quickly share it. I think it'll be highly politicized the way this is handled. And I think it'll, it'll be our responsibility as journalists to try to get the story to the public and try to make sure the, the public knows what's happening within their government And uh, we can't necessarily rely on the White House helping in that or being truthful. Um, But we have to do the best that we can to make sure people know what's happening. This is an important thing, even if it was not an election year. But as people are making their decision over who will govern the country for the next four years, knowing as much as possible about the president's health and about the public health guidelines that are operating within the White House is critical. And I think uh, as reporters, we're going to be doing as much as we can to make sure that the public has as much information as they need uh, about the s- state of the president's health, the state of whatever potential outbreak there may be in the West Wing, and the state of the government with just a few weeks to go before the election.
1: Is there any other entity that could give those updates on the president's health, the Walter Reed or another institution, or this this does need to come from the White House itself? Like they have full control over what access reporters have to updates on the president's health and the health of other people within the White House or other leaders that he's come in contact with?
0: Well, if the, if the White House were to sort of realize that they do lack credibility with the public, and they would want to put more credibility into this process, they could cede their authority and give the process over to Walter Reed and to some of the scientists and some of the apolitical members who may have access to the president's health and allow them to brief the press, allow them to report things from the public. We've already seen the president's personal doctors sort of shade the truth or or, or change uh, their own medical opinion in order to put the president in a positive light, whether it's over his weight or over the issue of hydroxychloroquine. So they don't have a lot of credibility, the, the White House doctors, But uh, I think the military doctors that Walter Reed and some of the scientists within the government uh, who are tied to the president in any way, if they were to come out and say the president's symptoms are fine, I think that might help uh, with the credibility and the believability of whatever's Mm -hmm. coming out about the president's health and about the health of the West Wing. Uh, And and I actually would encourage that, I think, if if we're going to have a a credible process here. uh, Otherwise, I would expect a large number of leaks, a large number of people who are outside of the process to tell Mm -hmm. reporters what's actually going on. And a lot of unsourced information coming out over the course of the coming weeks about what's actually happening behind the scenes, not just the official line from the White House, which we know we can't always trust.
1: Uh, Yeah, Tolu, that's so important because I think we're going to see a lot in social media and other that we you know, we won't know where it's being sourced from. It could be conspiracy. It could be the truth. Um, that's going to be a big challenge. Finally, is there any, uh, do you have any idea what this means for the president to do his day-to-day job as president of the United States? Obviously, he doesn't need to be in physical contact with people to do many of the things he needs to do as president. But do you have a sense of what this means just Big picture on uh, you know being physically quarantined from his entire uh, White House team while trying to run the country.
0: For any normal president, there would be a way for them to work behind behind the scenes. We have seen other world leaders who have either contracted. The coronavirus, or been exposed, and, and been at risk of the coronavirus, saying I'm going to quarantine for a couple of weeks. and I'm going to continue to work behind the scenes, and they've done video messages, they've been on the phone, and they've tried to show, you know, good public health guidelines and set an example for the rest of the country who are going through, um, you know, these kind of annoying quarantines, but showing that you can continue to do them to keep the rest of the public safe. I fear that President Trump is not the kind of president who easily can take take himself out of commission for two weeks and just do virtual events he has been pining to do these big rallies for for quite a while and that's part of the reason why he has defied his own public health guidelines and done major rallies just because he needs to have that in-person adoration and affection from his supporters Uh, so for his role as president as long as he remains asymptomatic there's nothing that would stop him from you know negotiating over the phone with lawmakers signing legislation, doing things remotely while he's in quarantine for the next several days. Uh, but for him as a person, as a showman who likes to be in person, who likes to have a crowd around him, it may be very difficult for him to follow the guidelines, and I think he'll be itching to get back out on the campaign trail and out in big crowds as soon as it's possible, and even possibly before it's recommended from his uh, health a- advisors. Uh, so just knowing this president from covering him for for quite a while, I do think that he is unlikely to just continue doing his job as normal from behind the scenes. I think he's going to be trying to figure out how to break out of quarantine as quickly as possible.
1: Tolu Olunarepa, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this very fast-moving story. Really appreciate
0: it. Sure thing. Thank you.
1: COVID-19 threw a wrench into everyone's 2020 plans, and voting is no exception. But President Trump has made no attempt to hide his disdain for one way to ensure safe voting. I think mail-in
2: voting is is going to rig the election. I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair you're election, urging them what? I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll and tell what, you what, what does that from a, a common sense, does that mean you're going to you you your people means. to take to it the It means screen? you have a fraudulent election.
1: This is all happening parallel to a number of election-related lawsuits brought by Republicans and Democrats in states across the country. There are fights over everything from signature match rules to who can and can't collect absentee ballots to where those ballots can be physically dropped off. Both the Biden and Trump campaigns have put together legal teams to deal with pre-election issues and prepare for what's likely to be significant post-election litigation. To get perspective from the GOP, I spoke with Justin Reamer, chief counsel at the Republican National Committee.
3: Well, this is by far the most robust uh, litigation effort that the Republican National Committee has engaged in uh, on these types of issues. So it is a significantly uh, more comprehensive effort than we've ever had. Uh, And so we are spending millions of dollars uh, on litigation and on what we view as protecting the integrity of the election.
1: You said you're spending more this year. What makes this year feel like it's more at risk than any previous election?
3: Like the answer to every question in 2020, it's COVID. COVID has led to an absolute explosion uh, in litigation, uh, surrounding voting issues. Uh, and it started actually back in the spring when states were conducting their, uh, began conducting their primaries and, uh, Democrats began, uh, suing states and trying to strike down, uh, various rules related to their absentee voting processes. And we mobilized very quickly to be able to join those lawsuits, uh, to be able to defend those laws.
1: So can you give us some examples? Because I think for a lot of folks, they would say, of course, COVID changed everything as people, you know, we're going to change the way they voted and the nervousness, especially in the primaries about voting in person. But why wouldn't both Democrats and Republicans want people to be able to vote in a safe manner? And if that's getting a ballot at your house versus going in person, what's the difference?
3: Well, absolutely. Well, first, uh, we do not have a problem with voters voting absentee. Uh, if a voter needs to vote absentee or if a state allows a voter uh, to be able to vote absentee for any reason or or no reason at all,, uh, we have absolutely no no problem with that. So, uh, as a practical matter, I, I just don't think we're we're necessarily against absent absentee voting um, at all. Uh, But what we do view is very important is that with more people voting absentee, uh, that the existing safeguards that are in place in the law are upheld, and they have unfortunately been under attack. So with more people voting absentee, it seems like it is more important now than ever to have those existing uh, procedures in place. And from our standpoint, I think uh, the Democrat attorneys have used COVID as an excuse Uh, to attack these laws that are on the books. Uh, Many of these lawsuits that are brought are challenging policies that have been in place for years and years, and that the Democrats have actually been challenging for years and years, Uh, but they view COVID as having uh, giving them better justification to be able to strike down these laws.
1: I know that one other rule that is getting a lot of litigation and I want you to talk about is the question about how long after election day a state election officials can receive a ballot and if you can talk about that and where you and the rnc are on this issue
3: this has been a key issue in the litigation battles that have been going on around the country election day delivery deadlines for absentee ballots have been challenged nationwide uh, and the courts, thus far, it's been pretty much a split decision as far as whether or not those those deadlines for delivering an absentee ballot on election day will stand. And from our perspective, it's it's an important thing. While Covid is certainly an emergency, at this point, it is not unforeseeable, right? Everyone knows that the virus is happening and that more absentee voting is happening. And so from our perspective, we do not view it as a burden for individuals to have to return their ballots by election day. And many courts have agreed with us on that.
1: I want to go back to something else you said when you you talked about, you know, Republicans overall are not opposed to absentee voting, but the president sort of sounds like he does, especially when it comes to certain states. Can you help us square those two
3: things? So our main uh, qualm with all of this is, Uh, The difference between when a voter requests an absentee ballot and submits that application with the identifying information uh, that is required and that the election official is able to process that ballot and know that the individual actually wants the ballot to be mailed to them, they can verify the identity as well as the address to where the ballot is, is supposed to be mailed. And that's fine. And the president has said that is perfectly fine. I do not have a problem with a solicited absentee ballot. Where the problem lies is in several states, which which have decided to move to an all vote by mail election, uh, which, w- which entails mailing ballots without a request. And to us, that's a big problem. Uh, states like um, Nevada and New Jersey and Montana have decided to do that. And there's a couple issues there. One is that the states are unfortunately not maintaining their voter rolls. So voters remain on the rolls uh, at addresses where they no longer reside and voters die. And when the uh, when the election officials go to mail out those ballots, there's ballots being delivered to those folks. There's ballots be- being delivered uh, to addresses where the voter no longer resides. With an application, you eliminate that problem. Because the election official is going to know the person actually wants a ballot to be mailed to them. And so that is the main difference there as far as uh, having a problem with, uh, with with all vote by mail versus a solicited absentee ballot.
1: Right. So you don't trust that the states – what they tell us is, look, all of these ballots they have, right, you have signature matches, you have codes, you um, you know, basically like QR codes that matches a voter with a ballot. That if a ballot comes to my house, addressed to somebody else, and I try to fill it out and send it in, it's going to get thrown out. You don't believe that to be the case?
3: Well, I think certainly in many instances there it will be detected. But I will say, if the Democrats get their way on the litigation that they filed, those safeguards will no longer be there. Uh, things How like so? witness requirements because they're suing to strike all of these all of these laws down. Not all of them, I don't mean to overstate it, but they're suing uh-huh. to strike many they're suing to strike many of them down. They're attacking signature matching provisions, they're attacking witness requirements, they're attacking ID requirements.
1: I, I want to key in on one state we're going to be talking to folks there this week too and that's Pennsylvania, which seems to have a lot of litigation and there's also stuff making its way through the legislature. It's also a place The president famously said a lot of bad things happen in Philadelphia at the debate the other night. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you all are seeing there, doing there, and what your expectations are for early vote and then post-election?
3: Well, I think Pennsylvania, rightfully so, has taken center stage in a lot of these voting debates and and what's happening. They've had a lot of litigation. They've had a lot of problems uh, in administering their primary elections earlier this year, Uh, They are rolling out new voting equipment, uh, and they are, uh, for the first time, have gone to no excuse absentee voting, uh, which actually uh, predates the COVID uh, pandemic. So this was already going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the state is making a lot of changes, uh, and we're concerned about uh, how they're going to implement these. And some of the early indicators from the primary uh, were unfortunately a, a little distressing for us. Uh, the Democrats have also filed, uh, several lawsuits there, uh, trying to strike down some of these provisions, these safeguards, uh, that I mentioned earlier. And so we're, we are quite concerned about what's happening in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we're placing a lot of emphasis on it. We have concerns about how the election will be administered. And so we want to be able to, you know, be, have a line of sight into what's happening and, uh, just to make sure the election is run the way, the right way.
1: And I know there's a lot of debate, too, and, and again, the president brought it up at, at the debate about poll watchers, what people are able to do and not do. Each state, each jurisdiction has different rules about who can you know, be watching or like physically in place at each polling place and how far they have to be from voters, et cetera, even before COVID. But talk to us a little bit, though, about what's happening with this early vote where the president's saying our poll watchers got kicked out. That's not fair. You talk to Philadelphia administrators and they say, well, we've had these rules for a while now. You you can't come to a satellite office and and do poll watching. So can you help us understand where you guys are drawing the line on, on poll watching and what, what your expectations are for how this is going to look?
3: Sure, absolutely. So our position is that wherever voting is taking place – there should be observation permitted. That does not seem to me to be a controversial proposition that where people are voting, and uh, just like on election day, they're just doing it ahead of election day, where poll watchers are certainly allowed, that they should also be allowed during the early voting process. Like I said, Philadelphia, there's a lot of warning signs there about how this election is going to be administered. And a tried and true component of voting in elections in America is being able to have observers observing the process. They are not there to disrupt the process. They are there simply to observe and to document and to make sure the election is being run smoothly.
1: Well, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate you taking the time, Justin. Thanks so much.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Amy.
1: Justin Reimer is the chief counsel at the Republican National Committee. We reached out to the Biden campaign for an interview, but they declined.
3: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads. From Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever
0: you get your podcasts.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter. As of today, more than 72 million Americans have requested absentee ballots and more than 2 million Americans have cast their vote. This despite the fact the president has tried to delegitimize this very legal process of voting and continues to hint that he will not accept results of an election that does not go in his favor.
3: Can you give a direct answer?
2: You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. No, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. And I didn't last time either.
1: Meanwhile, Election officials across the country are scrambling to update voters as lawsuits continue to make their way through the courts. It's a confusing and very fast-moving process. To help us sort through it all, I reached out to Grace Panetta, who writes about elections and voting for Business Insider.
2: So the big picture right now is we have early voting beginning in many states. Um, Over half of states have now sent out mail ballots to those who have requested them. Um, And already so far as of today, October 1st, we have about 2 million people who have either submitted their mail ballots or who have voted early. So this is definitely a big change from earlier years. Um, And so obviously in the primaries, states had varying levels of difficulty with scaling up mail voting. It's something that a lot of states didn't have much experience experience with, but a lot of lessons have been learned. From those primaries that states have and so far things are going you know pretty smoothly there are always going to be some bumps along the way with any process that's run by humans including elections but so far you know we're seeing mostly success with early voting in virginia north carolina which was the first state to send out everyone uh, their mail ballots for those who had requested them so far as having a pretty smooth experience with ballots getting delivered on time and voters being notified when there are issues with their ballots. So which states are the
1: ones, you pointed out the ones that seem to be doing pretty well. And then there are others, and I know New York is a particular Mm -hmm. focus of yours, that (laughs) things are still look like a kind of a mess when it comes to the mail ballot.
2: New York's election administration has been extremely problematic for a long time. It's really sort of a national stain on the city of New York, and this has been an issue for years and years. Unfortunately, there were a lot of problems with the primary, too, with Mm -hmm. people not getting their ballots. And now they're having problems that they're blaming on the vendor for sending ballots to the wrong people, having things that are printed backwards. But fortunately, when we look at the bigger picture, New York is not reflective of the rest of the nation. Um, And we obviously hear most about the things that go wrong. And, you know, in the states, the swing states especially, that are scaling up mail voting for the first time, we're seeing a lot of litigation um, and still dispute over the rules as we approach November 3rd in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, where there have been lawsuits that have involved both Democrats and Republicans over when ballots can be received by if they have to be postmarked by a certain date around the use of drop boxes. This is all still ongoing, and it does put a lot of strain on election officials, but it's also something that states have been able to prepare for since the summer. So speaking of those
1: lawsuits, I mean, like TikTok, we're getting really close to the election. Do do you have any sense of when these are going to get resolved and, and if these could end up being litigated post-election, potentially like all the way to Supreme Court
2: we're seeing a record amount of pre-election litigation over the rules this year. This is a continuation of a trend that began after the 2000 election debacle, after Bush v. Gore, um, with parties and campaigns starting to use it as a political strategy. And now with the pandemic, I think nearly every state, with a few exceptions, have made some changes to their election rules, either legislatively or with executive orders. And then there are groups, outside groups, too, you know, hobbling on the judges and judiciaries in those states or at the federal level to make changes in response to the pandemic to preserve, you know, the right to equal protection to vote. Um, And you're right, we are sort of getting, you know, down to the wire here. And courts, you know, sometimes abide by a thing called the Purcell principle, which essentially stipulates that courts should try not to make major changes to the rules of elections close to the day itself. But there are still so many cases pending, You're really seeing a record number of, of cases. And it does lead a lot of confusion. For example, in South Carolina, there have been so many back and forth rulings and injunctions and stays on whether a witness signature is required, which is also a problem in the primary in Wisconsin. So you could have situations where People see the news that a court rule that a signature isn't required, so they don't get it for their ballot, but then that decision gets stayed and their vote might be cast into doubt. In Wisconsin, we're seeing this over when ballots can be received by and over the voter registration deadline. And it really, you know, can cause a lot of strain for election officials to have to communicate mm. the rules out to people um, and make sure they get counted. And as, as for when we can expect these suits to be resolved, I mean, it really, really depends On the situation. But I mean, hopefully, um, officials just really want clarity around the rules so they can properly educate voters. Um, And then when it comes to the post-election side of things, I mean, absolutely, we can see, you know, immediately lawsuits to be filed over the counting of mail ballots um, and the rules around that in such an Mm -hmm. unprecedented situation. No side is going to want to give up an inch.
1: What's your sense about Whether one side or the other is better prepared, Democrat, Republican, Biden, Trump, for this.
2: Yeah, so both campaigns just have massive litigation teams that are focused 100% on these issues all the time now. It's really a mammoth effort like we've never seen before. And the Democrats have won a lot of victories in the swing states, notably with extending the deadlines by Mm -hmm. um, which ballots must be received by. We've seen judges in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, and then in North Carolina, the state elections board settled to extend the deadline by which ballots must be received, which is a big win um, for Democrats because late arrival of ballots is a top reason why ballots are disqualified. Um, And as Democrats being more likely to vote by mail, that could prevent a lot of votes being thrown out. Um, Some of these cases are being appealed and, you know, those rulings still could change. But that is a big, big theme we've seen so far in litigation. And the other thing, too, and the Washington Post did a really great analysis about this recently, is that many of the cases that have been fought in federal court, really no judges have sided with Trump's view that voter fraud is extremely pervasive and rampant Mm. or that voter fraud with mail ballots is rampant. There hasn't been any cases where a judge has, you know, sided with that and agreed that that's what the evidence shows. And so Trump, by making the statements that he's made has sort of put himself in a bit of a tough position because there's a big gulf between what he says and what his campaign can prove in court and the republicans have won, you know, some some victories especially around, you know, third party ballot collection other cases around um, when ballots can be received and what conditions ballots have to follow to be accepted. So like in Pennsylvania, a really big one was this issue of ballots that lack a secrecy envelope, which is another really niche, arcane thing that's all of us. <laughs> right. <gonna use. laughs> right. Everybody court- knows what a naked yeah. ballot is, which I sounds kind of not. dirty, actually, <laughs> I but know. we need a better term for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say, you know, looking at particularly the, the the swing states, the Democrats have succeeded in getting a lot of these really, really big changes that they were asking for, um, whereas Republicans have been kind of unable to substantiate the president's assertions of mm-hmm. widespread fraud.
1: Well, help us understand this too, because let's say now it's a couple days after the election, one candidate wins a state by a by a pr- pretty big margin. Okay, let's let's say it's three, four, five points. Would a legal action automatically be thrown out if the losing side brought it up? I mean, is there is there sort of a cutoff by which a judge would say, look, or the state law would say, look, this has to be within a certain number of votes or a certain percentage of votes. You can't just sue anywhere you want to, anytime you want to, just because you lost.
2: Most states allow a campaign, a losing campaign, to petition for a recount. There are some that require the vote margin to be within a certain percentage for a campaign to file for that recount. In terms of, you know, challenging the validity of ballots in certain areas, you know, there's something experts refer to as the margin of litigation, at which point it's advantageous or not to be filing such challenges. Because, you know, these court cases are expensive financially. They take up time they, you know, are just a big undertaking for a campaign. So usually a campaign will, for example, only file for recount or statewide or asks for recounts if they think there's a good chance they can pick up a lot of votes. I mean, just thinking, you know, on a cost-benefit analysis, if, you know, even considering the fact that in many states we won't have all the ballots in by election day or the days after, and if a campaign is already three to five points behind by then or after more ballots have been counted, it just may not make sense for them to file those kind of challenges. But
1: to your point, you know, a campaign can say, let's just pick Pennsylvania, for example, and say, we're just going to go to Philadelphia, right? We're not going to file a statewide lawsuit, but we think there were problems in Philadelphia. The president has said bad things happen in Philadelphia. So you could see something like that, perhaps, that regardless of what the margin is, the argument from the Trump campaign would be the entire process was so rife with problems that, even though we lost by X huge percent, we want the ballots to be, I don't know, thrown out,
2: yeah, definitely. And this is another purpose that post-election litigation can serve is undermining the legitimacy of the rightful winner. This is, you know, something we've seen over and over again throughout election disputes in history, whether it was Bush v. Gore, the contested 2008 Senate election in Minnesota, and we know now that Trump has for years been sowing doubt and distrust over confidence in our elections and is claiming that it's rigged and fraudulent, especially in Democratic areas. So, you know, know, especially with his obsession with Philadelphia, it may be likely that his campaign, you know, files some kind of legal action. They're claiming immense irregularities or tragedy to undermine the vote count there or, you know, call for a recount. And this was also part of Al Gore's strategy in the 2000 dispute is he specifically targeted very Democratic-heavy counties uh, for recounts. At that point, it was all really county-based because that's where he thought he could gain the most votes. But, you know, in a Trump campaign situation, they may go in really hard on these Democratic counties to undermine trust in the outcome and just seek to cause more chaos and confusion, because as Trump has admitted, he doesn't like to lose.
1: Grace Panetta, thank you so much. This has been really informative. Thank you for having me. As most of you already know, Pennsylvania is a critical battleground state in this election. In 2016, President Trump won the state and its 20 electoral votes by less than one percent. But it's also a state that political insiders worry could experience massive challenges administering this election.
4: Basically, every element of voting is different from 2016. That's Jonathan Lai, and I'm a voting rights reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer.
1: I started by asking Jonathan to walk me through the changes to voting in Pennsylvania and what that could mean for voters and election officials.
4: When it comes to in-person voting, every single voting machine across the entire state has been replaced. And when it comes to voting by mail, Pennsylvania last year enacted a new law that now allows any Pennsylvania voter to vote by mail without requiring an excuse. That plus the pandemic has really shifted the attention onto voting by mail. About half of the voters in the presidential primary in June voted by mail, and maybe close to half or even half of voters this year will be voting by mail. And that's really significant because in the past, only about 5% of the votes were by mail.
1: And in the primary, can you walk us through some of the challenges or some of the good things that happened? Basically, help us understand if what you saw in the primary gives us any insight into what we could expect for November.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think basically we take all the challenges that we saw in the primary when it comes to staffing when it comes to being able to handle an absolute surge in mail ballot requests, when it comes to being able to open polling places and safely social distance people, we take all those challenges from the primary and we basically double them, right? Because turnout's going to be about double. And so everything that was difficult, including counting the ballots afterward, all of that is just so much higher now.
1: And there, it took a long time. Especially in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs to get those ballots counted. But were there also problems with that? I know a lot of ballots have been deemed invalid. Can you walk through some of that?
4: Yeah. I mean, the reality is voting by mail does have higher rejection rates than voting in person. That's just part of voting by mail across the country. That's because usually things like people miss the deadlines, people have problems with their signatures. Or now what we're seeing in Pennsylvania is if you forget to use your inner secrecy envelope and you return what we're calling a naked ballot, those will be rejected as well. It also takes a long time to count these ballots. The reality is counting a paper ballot that is cast by mail takes longer than counting, just tallying up electronically all the ballots that were all the votes that were cast on voting machines on Election Day.
1: Plus, Pennsylvania law is that you can't start tabulating or even processing these ballots. Is that right? Before Election Day?
4: That's right. In Pennsylvania, you can't do anything with the mail ballots until 7 a.m. on Election Day. That's when polls open. That's when you're allowed to start checking the envelopes, comparing signatures, opening the envelopes, taking out the ballot. You can even start scanning them. You just can't release the numbers or anything like that.
1: I'm going to go to the quote that has now become sort of infamous the president made at the debate the other night where he said bad things happen in Philadelphia. And he specifically focused on the issue of poll watchers and a poll watcher for the Republicans being kicked out of an early vote precinct in the city Mm -hmm. of Philadelphia. Can you help us understand what's going on there and whether this was actually done illegally or not.
4: As far as we can tell, the president is wrong. It does not appear like these under law count as polling places. So here's what's happening. You're allowed to go to your county elections office and apply for a mail-in ballot in person. You're also allowed to request that that ballot be given to you on the spot. You're allowed to fill it out, and you're allowed to return it. You can do that in one visit. And so what's happened is that's being described as early voting. It's not technically a polling place, early voting center the way other states do it. You're not using a voting machine. You're requesting and filling out and submitting a mail ballot in one visit at the election office. So that's what these are. Philadelphia is opening 17 of these elections offices where people can go. They can also register to vote there. It's very much an election office. However, because people are voting there, these supposed poll watchers, which I should note, we don't really know that they are poll watchers because in Pennsylvania, you have to be certified as a poll watcher. We can't have random people arbitrarily entering polling places. So there are reasons why you have to be certified as a poll watcher. The Trump campaign does not have certified poll watchers in Philadelphia right now. And so these were not poll watchers. And as far as we can tell, under state law, these are not polling places.
1: Talk to us about the other Issue this is not Philadelphia itself, but Northeast Pennsylvania, where there was the case of ballots being tossed out. Mm-hmm. President Trump again addressed this, saying, These ballots, they were thrown in the trash, they had my name on them. Just another sign that Democrats are trying to rig this election. Can you tell us what that's really about, what happened there?
4: This is in Luzerne County, which is a Republican-led county that is actually a swing county that voted for Obama and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. This is not what the president is describing. There's no evidence of fraud or a conspiracy to rig the election. The county has said that there was a temporary worker who, in this worker's first few days on the job, got confused about the envelopes and the ballots thought that perhaps it was not a ballot, but it was an application, got confused, and threw the ballots out. To be clear, it is not good that election materials, including ballots, be thrown out, even if by mistake. That is not the same thing as having some sort of grand conspiracy to rig an election. There were nine ballots, and I will note, former DOJ officials and experts say, we should not know whom those ballots were cast for. We should not know that seven of those votes were cast for Donald Trump. There is no legitimate investigative reason for us to know that. Instead, they say that that suggests partisan reasons.
1: Jonathan, I I really appreciate you taking all this time with us today to walk through all of this. Thank you for all the great reporting you're doing up there and stay safe. Thank you. Jonathan Lai is a voting rights reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Investigative journalists, the Manhattan District Attorney, two out of three Americans, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll, what do they all have in common? Well, they want to see Donald Trump's taxes. People have spent years requesting, searching, and otherwise trying to force those documents to light, with the same fervor that propelled King Arthur to search for the Holy Grail. Stop!
4: What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britons. What? What? had a quest. To seek the holy grail.
1: Well, last weekend, we found out that the New York Times has them, or at least some of them. And by now, you've certainly heard some of the big takeaways. Andrea Bernstein is co-host of the Trump, Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica. She's also author of American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. That's out in paperback on Tuesday. So the thing that really stood out the most to me
5: was what the New York Times described as the vise that Trump is under. He owes hundreds of millions of dollars of debt, which we understood, but we didn't understand the backdrop that he is really hemorrhaging money from his businesses. So here you have a president who has a almost direct financial interest in winning re-election. So it's not just about holding on to power or prestige, as it is for most presidents running for re-election or being able to enact a certain ideological program, in his case, his family company's bottom line directly depends on the outcome. And that's because if he's president in the next few years when this debt is due, it puts the banks in this really difficult situation of having to decide, perhaps, are they going to default a sitting president, or Mm. are they going to not? Either choice is bad, and so long as he's president, he has the ability to drum up profits in his hotels and his golf courses by what we see every day, which is that people who seek favor from him can patronize his establishments and will typically get something from it, or will often get something from it. So he has this sort of money machine possibility while he's president, but not so much if he loses. And that is a really unique historical situation that we're in.
1: But it seems as if, and the New York Times pointed this out too, that even with all the benefits, as you pointed out, of being president and having all these properties and potentially using them to help pump up his profits, they've still continued to lose money. So if this indeed is a gambit to try to make as much money as possible to shore these holdings up, it hasn't really worked out, has it?
5: Well, it has and it hasn't. It's certainly clear from the Times reporting and from reporting that we've done that he's been able to make more money than he would have, that is, lose less money because he's president. So there's that. And the other thing, if you look at sort of the broad historical sweep that this reporting and other reporting brings out, what you see is a man who has always been able to start with a big pile of money and then find some other infusion. So first it was his father's real estate empire that he was able to use to invest in businesses and enterprises that were mostly losing money. The apprentice gave him a big infusion of money and all the licensing deals that came off of that. And he spent it all on golf courses, which it's been clear for quite some time are money-losing businesses. And now he's in a situation where his sort of next uh, mechanism for propping up his empire is the presidency. That is extraordinary.
1: Andrea, these stories, as you know and you've reported on, have been out here for a while. There, there's new reporting here in the New York Times because they have access to his tax records. But it seems like these stories come out, they make this big splash. And then there's this sort of collective shrug, it seems from the American public, either, we knew this about him. And this is why we don't like him. Or this, I like him. I don't think this is true. Or he's just a good businessman. And he's writing off losses like any good business would. He's still a really rich dude. I don't understand it. So, Is there a reason you think that these don't get the kind of traction that, again, in any other era with any other person as president would seem to be a big, big campaign-altering deal? Yeah.
5: Well, these stories exist in the same truth ecosystem that every other story exists in. Mm. So we have the Trump base, the sort of roughly 40% of the American public, who believe and have been encouraged to believe by him and by supportive news sources that every time a story like this comes out, it's just to tarnish Trump. And one of the things I like about Trump is that he he stands up to what they see as attempts to tear him down. That's one of the things that appeal to them. So it's this sort of perfect cycle of a story comes out which would fail anybody else, but for Trump it somehow solidifies the support among his base. The question is, does it mean anything to anyone, to that tiny sliver of swing voters, to this sort of corporate permission structure, which was very happy in the early days of Trump to go along because people were making money, their taxes were getting lowered. But you see a situation where his own financial enterprise looks shakier and shakier and shakier. It can raise questions. So I think that there is certainly that There's certainly the idea that while people are really suffering in this country, the president is paying so little taxes. And this is from a man whose family company was started with help from the taxpayers. There never would have been a Trump real estate empire had not U.S. taxpayers guaranteed loans in the early days and really helped get it off the ground. So that is the irony here, that the Trump company, the Trump organization and all its Uh, affiliated companies succeeded because of we the taxpayers and donald trump's father fred trump and now donald trump and one of the things that the times pointed to also his children appear to be doing everything they can to not pay anything back to the well of taxpayers that sort of made them what they are and you know the idea at the time was that this is good for everybody it's good for the private developers and the private business people but also good for the country to have these people succeed. So there was a sense of everybody marching together in the same direction that has really, really frayed and particularly under this president. And, you know, it's something that is the sort of both the general direction that the country's been moving in to have very wealthy people pay fewer and fewer taxes. But it's something that the Trump family has almost stands alone in Mm -hmm. the way that they have avoided paying taxes. And this is something that the Times documented. And one year, it was sort of Trump who claimed the biggest losses and the biggest deductions. So it's an actual, not just a figurative superlative.
1: Andrea Bernstein, thank you so much for joining me, walking us through this. Thank you so much, Amy. Great talking to you as always. Andrea Bernstein is co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica. She's also the author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. And that's all for us today. I think we can all agree it's time for everyone to take a deep breath as we process a lot of news happening very fast. We'll be watching it with you. And let's give some props to the team who helped make this happen. Our senior producer, Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, who's our associate producer, Polly Orungu, our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Howitt is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Of course, you can call us anytime at eight seven seven eight 8 my take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Tinsy Vega is back with you on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.